Uh, well, uh, Nathan uh, Busnitz certainly uh, helped set the context uh, for our study. Uh, and I'm glad he was in chapter 2 and not chapter 1 because I was concerned there for a moment what I was going to do if he was going to focus on uh, chapter 1, but I quickly saw that it was chapter 2, which in many ways really ties in to what we are going to study this morning, actually what we're continuing to study in the series in, in Titus as we look at these qualifications that, that the Apostle Paul has given to, to Titus for the church in or on the island of, of Crete. And as we're going to see, uh, as we do get into chapter 2 a little bit later on, we're going to see that the qualifications that the Apostle Paul gives to, to Titus as to candidates worthy of the office, worthy of the work of the overseer, he's not giving qualifications or characteristics that belong only to a certain select group of ubermen. Uh, these are qualities that have to uh, be reflected in the lives of all who are truly saved. And in order to see that progress made in the church, you need to have leadership that that serves as the blueprint for what Christian sanctification looks like. So as we go into this study again this morning, I, I, I want you to look at it in, in several ways. One of these ways certainly is how you need to be praying for us as elders, how you need to be praying for future elders as well. But I also want you to look at these qualities as something to which all here today have to strive for in their own, in their own Christian walk. Well, let's look at the text that the Apostle Paul left for Titus. Verses 5 to 9 of chapter 1 provide this, this uh, focus for study. We've already looked at some of, our, uh, some of this uh, wording already, but we'll continue this, this morning into the central section here. Paul writes this, Titus chapter 1, uh, verse 5, he begins and he says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Then last time when we were in Titus, we looked at the, the qualifications that are given, first of all, with respect to the man's home life. Paul writes this in verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now this morning, we're going to look at the next verse, verse 7, where Paul continues as he transitions from home life to more general uh, life and reputation when he writes this in verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. We're going to notice that all of these are disqualifying or prohibited characteristics. And then our next time that we are together, we will look at the uh, final words, verses 8 and 9, the positive traits that Titus was to look for. These candidates must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, as I mentioned already, when we see this term above reproach that occurs both in the beginning of verse 6, where Paul describes the domestic qualities or reputation that is necessary, he uses the term above reproach, and he's, he uses it once again at the beginning of verse 7 when he transitions from the domestic reputation to the man's more general reputation. Above reproach, as we said, has the idea that, that there, are no, there are no allegations that can be made that, that are sensible, reasonable allegations that can be made against the man's, the candidate's reputation. So we saw that First of all, Paul says, look first in the home. And his character in the home is, is to be marked by two required qualities. And then his character in the church then becomes the next area of focus. And Paul gives five prohibited qualities and then seven required qualities. And just by quick way of review, we saw that as Paul begins this list, Paul does not say to Titus, look for those who have the desire and look for those who are available. That often becomes criteria in choosing leaders, sadly, in, in many churches. But Paul says, no, that 
the choosing of elders is to be made on criteria that looks at observable character and skill. Ultimately, each candidate had to possess a reputation against which allegations of misconduct were not being made. It's not that they're perfect, but it's that allegations of misconduct, of impropriety, of moral failure, of moral weakness are not being made against such men. And as Paul begins to define that, he turns first, as, as he does in Titus or 1 Timothy as well, chapter 3, he turns first to the home. And Paul does that here as well in Titus. Look at the man in the home. That is the first area of leadership. And if you want to know how a man leads, you can look at his conduct in the home. And so Paul says, look for these two things. His loyalty to his marriage covenant. Does he keep his word? No matter the circumstance, does he keep his word to the promises that he made to his wife? And then secondly, look for success in leadership in terms of his ability to raise children, to manage the household. But now Paul transitions to a different set of criteria, related but observable in a different realm. This is observable. These, these characteristics will be observable in the realm of general life, but particularly within the man's interaction with other Christians, his, his life in the church. And what we see in verse 7 is a list of five prohibited characteristics. Paul gives us first, as he often does, negatives before he goes to the positive. It's Paul's way of teaching. We saw that even in 1 Thessalonians, that Paul will go back and forth in order to teach us something by first defining it negatively and then positively. And he begins here as well in Titus by giving us prohibited characteristics. In fact, what you could call these characteristics of verse 7, you could call these the five disqualifying sins for church leadership. Disqualifying in the sense that if a man is marked by these things, he is not ready or qualified to take on more formal leadership responsibilities. You've heard of the seven deadly sins, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride, seven deadly sins. Well, Paul is going to give us here five disqualifying sins, and it's interesting, we're going to see that there's overlap with those seven deadly sins as as we get into this. But as I said already, as we look at these qualities, this is not just something to apply to someone else. These are not just disqualifying characteristics for a candidate aspiring to leadership. These are also discrediting qualities for any Christian. We heard that so well exposited for us already this morning by Nathan as he walked us through the the first verses, or actually all of chapter 2. We're going to see when we get into chapter 2 and go into that chapter deeply that Paul repeats the same expectations as he lists here. He prohibits the same kinds of sins in chapter 2 for all of the, the Christians as he does here for those who are aspiring to leadership. Now with that said, let's now get into chapter 1 verse 7 and, and look at how Paul sets this up with the initial wording, the first part of verse 7. He says this, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Now just a quick note about the language of the text here. Back in verse 5, Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders. And we looked at that term a little bit back a couple of weeks ago. And we noted that that term for Elders is a term that emphasizes maturity. And Paul uses that there as an umbrella term to describe the kind of men that, that Titus was to, to search for. Men who are mature. Men who are elders. It's a term that designates stature. But now Paul shifts his language. He's not talking about a brand new category of leaders Rather, he switches his terms to emphasize something a little different. He now switches to the use of the term overseer. The term overseer in all of the New Testament is is used five times. We could see it in Acts 20, 
verse 28, Philippians 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, here, and in 1 Peter as well, in all of those cases, the idea of the overseer is the idea of guardianship. In fact, if you look at the reference in 1 Peter 2, verse 25, it's actually uh, an instance where this term overseer is applied to Christ. And according to the NASB translation, the, the translation there is that Christ is the overseer of our souls, or as the NASB translates it, the guardian of our souls. So the change in terminology helps us understand how Paul views the function of these mature men. How Paul viewed, under the movement, the superintendence of the Spirit, how he viewed these men, these elders, in terms of their role, their responsibilities. They were to be overseers. They were to function as guardians. Now let's look at that a little bit in in, in more detail. Why is that so important? Now, Paul once again here, uses his language to stress that with this role of guardianship, there is a moral responsibility. In fact, it's not just a preference, it is a necessity. Notice how Paul expresses himself. He says the overseer must be. And, And in the development of this letter so far, this comes now as the strongest assertion here of logical necessity. Being uh, above reproach in, in verse, verse 6 with respect to the home. But now he uses even stronger language here, and you could translate it this way For it is necessary, not optional, not preferable, not a best case scenario, but it is absolutely necessary with respect to the overseer. Deep reproach. Paul is emphasizing here the The absolute necessity. There's no wiggle room. There's no allowances for for exceptions. Paul lays down a standard, and now he explains why. Notice the very last part of that phrase there, that clause. As God's steward. Why is this high level of moral expectation so important for leadership? Because these elders, these overseers, are God's steward. They're God's steward. That term for steward speaks of an administrator. Paul is drawing from, from a, common, uh, a common experience in the Greco-Roman world, and it certainly would have been there in the island of Crete as well, that when you had families, the father, the paterfamilias, the father, the head of the home, would, would often task to one of his slaves a high responsibility, a privileged responsibility, and that he would give to that slave the the responsibility of overseeing everything else in the household. And that would include oversight into the the children, oversight into the other laborers associated with that household. It would would oversee, that, that administrator would oversee the expenditures of the home. He would oversee the income of the home. That, was, that person was known as the administrator. And Paul draws that same word to speak of those who would be pastors or elders in the church. They are administrators. Now notice, he pulls that particular one to emphasize an important, important reality. The household doesn't belong to the administrator. There, there's no ownership here. It is not his territory. He has been designated as the administrator, delegated with these responsibilities, but it does not belong to him. And what was especially known about him was the dedicated loyalty to the paterfamilias, to the head of the home. They needed to be loyal. Moreover, associated with this responsibility was a very strict obligation to fulfill all of the duties That administrator did not have flexibility in showing up some days and not to determine which responsibilities he would fulfill and which ones he wouldn't. He had to dedicate himself fully day in and day out to the whole penelope of, of responsibilities. That is what is known as an administrator. And so Paul brings in that 
language to describe what a, an elder, what an overseer is. He is a steward. It doesn't belong to him. It's not his responsibility to invent or decide which responsibilities you fulfill. He has to do it all, and he has to do it in very to the head of the household and his stated obligations. That's important for us to remember. And what Paul says here, notice the logical connection Paul makes. Because the elder is this steward, it is of absolute logical necessity that he be above reproach. There's the connection. Because of the responsibilities placed in his hand, it is of utmost importance that he be above reproach. And that is a a very high calling. It is a very strong reminder uh, of the the difficulty involved with, with being an elder, being an overseer. I like what John Flavel said as the Puritan pastors were being called back into service after the the years of that that exile that they experienced, John Flavel addresses them, addresses these pastors in a sermon entitled The Character of a Complete Evangelical Pastor, and he reminded them of this high moral standard with these words. He said, Brethren, it is easier to declaim against a thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves to be more industrious in our pulpits than in our closets. Believe it, sirs, all our reading, studying, and preaching is but trifling hypocrisy till the things read, studied, and preached be felt in some degree upon our own heart. That was Flavel's reminder. He goes on in that sermon with a very, very strong critique and admonition that these pastors be far more concerned about their own moral standing than they would go out and, and, and admonish others. It needs to begin in the heart of the candidate or for in the heart of the elder. So what we see here that Paul doing, he equates the office of elder and overseer and steward they're, they're all the same man. They, they, those terms emphasize different aspects. But we also see a progression that takes place here in verse 7. We saw in verse 6 that Paul focused on the man in his home. But now he focuses on the man in the church. So we see this movement of, of the lesser to the greater in Paul's, in Paul's logic. This is why it's so important. It's one thing to, to have a certain kind of a testimony at home. But now, when we're talking about the church, this is God's house. This is the house that belongs to God. He says the same thing back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It was something that Paul did. He would refer to the church as God's household. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 15. So that's why Paul begins in verse 6 with those qualities related to the man's home where he is the, the owner of that home. How does he do there? And then move to the greater. This is God's household. So it brings with it even more sobriety. Now that said, let's look at these five disqualifying sins for ministry as an answer. First one, as Paul continues in verse 7, is this. It begins with pride. Just like in the list of seven deadly sins, Paul also includes this one in the list of five disqualifying sins for leadership. Pride. Notice the term self-willed. Self-willed. What does that term refer to? Paul says that the candidate cannot be self-willed. This term refers to one who is headstrong, one who is self-centered. In fact, the term itself is based on this idea of self. It has the idea of self-pleasing is how you would look at that term literally. 
This man, could, you could, you could uh, define this man if he had this as one who is stubborn, one who is arrogant, one who strongly asserts his opinion with little effort to listen to others. One commentator defined it this way, at the root of this disqualifying sin is a fundamental selfishness that compels one to ride roughshod over others in the effort to satisfy oneself. It's, the, it's this, this, this selfishness that compels you to, to, to run over other people, to use whatever means necessary in order to, to pleasure one side of this term. Now understand this. When Paul uses this term, he is not he is not saying that the, the candidate can't be courageous. Let's not put those things in the same category. To be courageous and to stand for the truth is not the same thing as being self-willed. A little bit later, even in this own section, Paul is going to say that the candidate must also hold fast. He must cling to the faithful word so that he is able both to exhort, that's strong teaching, and to refute those who contradict. So being self-willed does not mean that you stand back or you step out of theological conflict. That's not what Paul is saying here. What he is emphasizing, though, is this concept of self-willed is that when you engage in those things, you cannot do it for your own pleasure. It's not about self. Another commentator says this, Referring to courage, specifically they're stated in verse 9, such forthrightness cannot cross over into importance and sense of superior entitlement over others. And, and here's the maxim that we can draw from this. As Paul denounces self-importance, being self-willed, stubborn, arrogant, you can put it this way, that being self-willed is just as disqualifying as living in a way to please others, as a man. Understand that. Living to please self, being self-willed, being arrogant, is just as ugly and just as disqualifying as living in the fear of man. And sometimes we can focus on the one sin, oh, that man is a, is, a, is a man. And we can focus on how ugly that quality is and, and fail to recognize that the opposite of that, living to please self, is just as, as disqualifying. Well, where does this manifest itself? How does this self-willed characteristic manifest itself? And as I was thinking of that, I was drawn to a a statement that I remembered from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer as, as he described pride in, in ministry. And, and Bonhoeffer noted that pride often manifests itself in the inability to listen to other people. Notice what he said in one of his works called Life Together, describing this common trait that he had observed among members of the clergy in Germany this inability to listen, he said this, the death of the spiritual life starts here, and in the end there is nothing left but empty spiritual chatter and clerical condescension which chokes on pious words. Those who cannot listen long and patiently will always be talking past others and finally, no longer will even notice it. Hmm. I think all of us can probably say, I've done that. And it is, it is a common temptation for us in leadership as well. We just care about what we want to say. We're self-willed. So what matters in a conversation is not what you say. What matters is is what I'm thinking right now, and I'm just driving to that point when you just take a breath, and I'm going to insert my speech into that breath. 
And Bonhoeffer said, that is the quality of a self-willed man. Well, it evidences itself in other areas. As I thought through this and, and thought of, of practical application, applications here, where does self-willing, the self-willing spirit manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself in the man who is always promoting himself, always talking about personal accomplishments. It, it, it manifests itself in a drive for credentials, in final things that will give you a platform. It, it manifests itself in a drive for applause and approval and compliments, all kinds of things. And I would just say this, especially to our seminary students here, understand the significance of what Paul is saying here. If this kind of self-willed attitude marks you, you're not qualified for the ministry. But again, as I said before, this is not just something for those aiming for eldership. This is a, this is a, a, a characteristic that all of us must mortify in us. In chapter 2 of Titus, we'll get into this in, in, in much more detail uh, th- this, this sin of, of being self-willed was particularly Paul the into this. We heard it go into other parts of the letter. You read of them as, as being these liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. You read in chapter 3 of, of the, the man in, engaged in foolish controversies and strife and disputes and how they are to be rejected. Paul has serious language for those who are caught up in this kind of sin. It's a disqualifying sin, and we must mortify it in ourselves. Thankfully, this is something that can be done by the grace of God, as chapter 2 goes on to, to say, as, as Nathan mentioned this morning, the grace of God has appeared. We're thankful for that. What's the second disqualifying sin? Paul describes it as wrath. It's wrath. Notice the term not quick-tempered. The, the reference here is, it, it describes one who is irritable, one who is irascible, one who does not have his anger under control. He's got a very short fuse, you could put it this way. In fact, the term is based off of the Greek noun orge, which is used as wrath. The term is used to describe God's wrath. It's always a righteous wrath against sinners. But whenever the term is used to describe man's wrath, it's always sinful. It's always sinful. It is what you could say the antithesis of being peaceable. Paul does not use this term quick-tempered in 1 Timothy 3, but he uses the antithesis when he says that the candidate must manifest this love for peacemaking, this love for peace. Being quick-tempered is certainly a disqualification from ministry. It, it, it certainly must disqualify you from any kind of additional ministry if you're aspiring more, if, if this, this, this deed of the flesh is, is not being mortified You've got a problem. And how serious is this? Think of Numbers chapter 20. What disqualified Moses, this great prophet of God, from entering the promised land? It was an outburst of anger. Remember Numbers chapter 20. You have that situation where God told Moses, who was very impatient with the people of Israel and their grumbling, Speak to the rock, and water will come out. Moses was so frustrated that he takes up his rod and and he strikes the rock, and water does come out. You might say, well, that was just a little thing, just a little impropriety on Moses' part. But notice the level of disqualification. We read this in verses 11 to 12 of Numbers 20. Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Aaron, You not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. 
And God stuck to that word, and Moses did not enter the promised land. A short fuse, as we all know, is fatal to relationships, let alone leadership. You look at the book of Proverbs, you, you find it emphasized over and over again how corrosive these outbursts of anger are. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Proverbs 20, verse 3, keeping away from strife is an honor, but people will quarrel. Proverbs 26, 21, like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. These are all marks of the fool. And so Paul is saying to to Titus, why would you ever put a fool in leadership? And anyone given to outbursts of anger is a fool, no matter what their educational credentials are. Chris, the church fathers, commenting so well on this verse, draws out the the, the association here when he says this, he says, how shall he, that is the candidate for eldership, instruct others to rule that passion of anger who has not taught himself? For power leads on to many temptations. It makes a man more harsh and difficult to please. Even him that was very mild, surrounding him with so many occasions of anger. If he have not previously practiced himself in this virtue, he will grow harsh and he will injure and destroy much that is under his rule. Chrysostom is saying here, listen to this, leadership is hard. And if you have a man who has has not been able to mortify the flesh in that area, which is so common and ubiquitous in every person's life, You put him in a position of leadership where the temptations will abound, and that man is going to destroy God's household. Don't do it. Scripture instructs us very clearly to avoid the quick-tempered. Again, you could look at Proverbs. Do not associate with a man given to anger. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. Romans 16, 17 says this. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye out on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. And later, a little later on in Titus chapter 3, Paul actually sets discipline for those who are quick-tempered and factious. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self condemned. Instead, we must remember James's admonition in James 1.19, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The third disqualifying sin is gluttony. Keep in line with those seven deadly sins. This one is gluttony. You might say, well, where does that come from? Well, notice the third prohibited quality in verse 7. Not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. Literally, that term, not addicted to wine, refers to one who dwells alongside the wine, with the emphasis on dwells. It's one who's alongside the wine, one given to drinking too much. What Paul is prohibiting here is, is elevating a man to the status of elder or overseer who's first a particular interest in alcohol. And Paul says the candidate cannot be known as one who lingers alongside of it, who crosses the line into excess and loses control. In Paul's day, just as much in ours, this is an issue. In fact, in In a recent book on church, the author of that book writes this, and this is writing really about that young, restless, and reformed crowd that really started to embrace drinking to such a a great degree. He said this, Darren Patrick said this, quote, as I coach and mentor church planters and pastors, and remember, he's speaking of this generation. He says, I am shocked at the number of them who are either addicted or headed toward addiction to alcohol. 
Increasingly, the same is true with prescription drugs. One pastor I know could not relax without several beers after work and could not sleep without the aid of a sleeping pill, end quote. And that's a, just a general, uh, a, a general assessment of what this man observed as he counseled with a lot, a great number of church planters and pastors. You might think in, in other contexts, uh, well, maybe it's a problem there, but really in the evangelical church, this isn't, this isn't a problem. And, and no, it is certainly a significant problem. And if it's not alcohol, it's prescription drugs, or if it's not drugs, there's this, this tendency among certain men to want to use these liberties to enjoy the kinds of effects that these things have on their lives. It's a particular thirst. And Paul says, if a man is marked by this thirst, he has this particular draw to linger on these things. He is disqualified from ministry. Scripture emphasizes repeatedly that enslavement to alcohol is a sin and one that warrants very strong Discipline. You can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, where Paul says this, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, if he's covetous, or an idolater, or a reveler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. What Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, look, if there's a member in your church who is out there getting drunk, don't associate with him. It's harmful. It needs to be disciplined by the church. Ephesians 5 verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Even a little later on in chapter 2, Paul is going to say to the, old, the older men, they are to be temperate. And that, is, that has a reference to, to wine. Older women are not to be enslaved to much wine. What's the problem? It's the problem with enslavement. Let me give you five reasons for why an enslavement to alcohol or any like substance, whether that's certain kinds of drugs, marijuana, etc., why it is so dangerous, especially for those in leadership. Number one, you could look at Hosea 4, verse 11. I'm not going to read it. We don't have time. But Hosea 4, 11 is very clear that with increased alcohol consumption comes in proportion decreased rational capacity. No one denies that. And you don't even need to be fully drunk in order to experience this. With every additional glass or mug comes decreased rational capacity. Number two, with increased intake of substance, decreased mind. That too is well known. No one denies that. What, what, does, what does alcohol do? It, it frees people up. It, it breaks the ice. It takes away inhibitions and, and insecurities. And Paul and other writers would say, absolutely, and that's what leads to decreased moral restraint. Number three, with increased consumption comes decreased spiritual discernment. You can see this clearly in Isaiah 5, verses 11 to 12, and the priests who are drinking and, and having decreased spiritual discernment, the inability to, to, to discern between right and wrong and spiritual religious matters. Number four, with the increase of substances like alcohol, with the increase of consumption comes increased physical enslavement. Proverbs 23 verses 34 to 35 speaks of that very vividly. The, the man who is, is mourning of his, his hangover is at the same time wanting another drink. He's that intake and consumption of substances like alcohol comes increased economic consequences. Let's look at a fourth disqualifying sin here that the Apostle Paul identifies as he gives this, this list of qualities that Titus is to look for in candidates. It's that of aggression. Aggression. What's the term here? The term is Paul says, not pugnacious. The candidate for leadership, even let's look at our own lives. 
the, the quality of, of growth in the Christian life is not going to be marked by pugnaciousness. Literally, the word refers to a striker, one who's always ready for a battle. You could say this, he either always has the boxing gloves on or they're, they're on his back. I mean, he is always ready for a fight. John Calvin put it this way, the word striker is therefore the term which Paul applies to those who deal much in threatenings and are of a warlike temperament. They're bullies. They're those who will insert themselves into any conversation, and whenever they do, a fight breaks out. They they live for it. And the, the idea of disputes and arguments isn't something that saddens them, but instead it gets them motivated. Paul says they're disqualified. Another commentator, William Hendrickson, said this, it speaks of a man who is ever ready with his fists, a bellicose person, a spitfire or fire eater. Great terms there. And Paul says, listen, Titus, when you're looking for candidates for leadership, you have to look for those who are not marked by this, who, who don't you know, get up in the morning just because they want to fight, who are not motivated to minister just because they want to fight. Instead, who, who recognize all the fights and the s- disputes and the strife is all the consequence of sin, and they're broken by it, whether in their own lives or they're broken when they see it happening in the lives of others. This kind of this pugnaciousness is dealt with a few places in Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And as a young man, he, he recognized this and wrote solutions of quarreling and argumentativeness. And, and one of his resolutions, number 58, says this, Resolved not only to refrain from an air of dislike, fretfulness, and anger in conversation, but to exhibit an air of love, cheerfulness, and benignity. Benignity, to not be threatening. So, so as the young Jonathan Edwards considered the, the call of Scripture, the implications of, of the Christian life, and, and the role of, of being a, a minister in God's church, he recognized that he was specifically to resolve his mind to, to get rid of of fretfulness and anger in conversations, but instead determine in his life that when he would enter conversations, he would bring with him an atmosphere. An atmosphere of love, an atmosphere of cheerfulness and non-threateningness. That is a mark consistent with what Paul's getting at. He has another one, the very next one, Resolution 59, says this, Resolved, when I am most conscious of provocations to ill nature and anger, he's talking about in his own life, that I will strive most to feel and act good-naturedly, yea, at such times to manifest good nature. This is what Edwards is, we all know of that, tendency to be pugnacious. It's in our flesh. It's a work of the flesh. It's who we are marked by, uh, or what we are marked by is to the old man. But what Edwards is saying here is the moment when that, that instinct clicks in, that, that deed of the flesh that prompts us toward this kind of pugnaciousness, Edwards said at that moment to stop, to pause, and when you're conscious of that temptation to strive in that moment to feel and to act good-naturedly. So when that person says something that is offensive to you, rather than just responding in anger, there is this pause and this question to self and this prayer to God, can I act good-naturedly? And when you, when you have that in your life, you know then that that is a mark of the Spirit's fruit in your life, and when you can see that in other men, you know that that is a qualification for ministry. I won't get into it, but you can see this in Titus again, chapter 3, verse 9, that, that's, that, that tendency towards strife. You can see it in 2 Timothy, and I will read this. Notice how Paul describes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25, the character of one of these 
men. Paul says the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. He must not be pugnacious, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Notice he's not just saying this to those who just have differences and matters of preference. No, these are those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Finally, a fifth one, real quickly, another of the five disqualifying sins, greed. As he ends this list of disqualifying sins, he says the candidate cannot be fond of sordid gain. Now, it's important to understand what he's saying. What Paul is saying here is that the man isn't shamelessly greedy for money. He's not greedy for, for more. And he's going to use this same terminology in the very next verses, in chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, to describe the troublemakers who are active there in the Cretan churches. Paul goes on to say, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching, thi- teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Same words that are used there. It marks, they're in it for the money. They're motivated to do what they're doing, to gain a platform, to, to get followers. They're, they're in it for some kind of material benefit. And Paul is clear here that as Titus is looking for candidates, he can't look for candidates who are going to use God's household as a way to, to, to gather the platform for their own material benefit. Interestingly enough, one Greek historian left us with a testimony of the Cretan people where he specifically zeroes in on this greed for sordid gain. It's the, he's the historian Polybius, 64 to 146 BC. So about, a, about two centuries before Paul, but nonetheless, the Cretans had their testimony or reputation by that time already. And this is what he writes about the Cretans. Money is held in such high honor among them Acquisition is not only regarded as necessary, but as most honorable. So much, in fact, do sordid love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. The Cretans, owing to their ingrained lust of wealth, are involved in constant broils, both public and private, and in murders and in civil wars. Paul says, if you see that in a candidate, he's disqualified. Now, we could look more at some of the other aspects that Paul emphasizes elsewhere in his letters related to this, but our time is is up, and so I do want to get some closing implications here from all of this. As I said in our in, in the previous study, as we looked at those domestic qualifications in verse 6, I'll say the same thing here as an implication of verse 7. Pray for your elders. They are men at best still fighting the flesh. They're still engaged in battle. And, and so we call upon you to pray for us. We call upon you to, to pray for the leadership of this church and other churches knowing that the battle still rages. Number two, examine your own life. As I said, these are not simply disqualifying characteristics for a candidate who's aspiring to the office of overseer. These are discrediting sins for you. These same sins discredit your testimony before a watching world. These same sins discredit your own profession before the enemy of your soul. Pride, wrath, aggression, greed, these things, as Paul says, ought not to mark the one who bears the name of Christ. Examine your own life. Confess that which still remains in 
and strength and, and commit yourself anew to mortifying. And that leads us to this application. We're on God's enablement, whether you are an elder or not, put off these sins and replace them with their opposite virtues in the place of pride, humility, in the place of wrath, peace, in the place of gluttony, self-control, in the place of aggression, patience, and generosity. These are the things in which we are to aim and strive and, and, and exceed as the grace of God impacts our lives and transforms us. Let's pray for that. Father, these words are challenging because as we we quickly realize that all of them still describe us in some way. That pride and wrath and gluttony and aggression and greed still mark our lives. We confess that to you and recognize that it is dishonoring to you. That it is discrediting to our ministry, to our testimony, to a watching world. We recognize that it even gives a foothold or it gives a place to the enemy of our souls to accusations against us. We acknowledge that. We confess it to you. And having been confronted with this reality, we ask anew for grace and mercy and strength to mortify these things in our lives with a renewed determination and to see your spirit produce within us greater humility, greater peace, greater self-control, greater patience, and sacrificial generosity. We ask that you would make these things more and more abundant in our lives for your glory's sake and for the sake of our testimony to each other and to the watching world. We ask it in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.